listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. How cool would it be if if God could just be approached you like you are you know how how awesome would it be if like like you know who you are you you lay down with you every night i'm not talking about what folks think you are and i'm not talking about what uh what you may try desperately to make people believe you are but who you know you are wouldn't it be really awesome if you could approach God like that and know that he loves you despite that like wouldn't it be wouldn't it be awesome if you could approach your creator with all your mess with the full confidence that Nothing you do can make him love you more and nothing you have done could make him love you less. Wouldn't that be awesome if we could do that? Well, guess what? That's how it works. The God who made us and allowed us to walk into disobedience against him. Into sin that was going to separate us from his holiness. That creator God is the one who has made a means by which we can come to the table. The only thing preventing us from enjoying what's at the table is us because it's laid there and it's ready. Whether you've never come to God by faith in his son, Jesus ever before. And you think I'm, I'm the one sinner that's too bad for him to save. I got good news for you. There's no one too bad to save. You never come to the table before. It's set. You got a nameplate, and you're welcome if you'll come on his terms, and that is bringing all your mess with you and just laying it on the table and going, God, I, I can't do anything with that. And the good news is that he looks at you with loving eyes and says, you don't have to do anything with that. God the Son's already done it. He paid for all of that that you bring to the table. It's washed under the blood, and if you will simply embrace Him as Savior. So if you've never, if you've never come to God by faith in Jesus before, there's a there's a seat waiting for you at the table. If you'll just simply by faith pull the chair out, sit down. Maybe you've come to the table before, and maybe you have. Uh, Maybe you've experienced that forgiveness that comes by being born into the family by faith. But you say, you know what, Kevin, I, I've, I hadn't been home for dinner in a long time. And, and I know that there's been a place set for me because I'm part of the family. But I hadn't been home to dinner. I can't tell you when. I know there's enough. If, if I would just come, I know there's enough. But I just can't imagine facing the one who saved me after all this that I've been wandering around doing on my own guess what that same good news that provides forgiveness to bring you into the family by faith is the good news that says once you've got a place at the table you simply need to come and sit at it now but pastor kevin what about all the stuff that i've done that i know god's not pleased with what did you do with it when you came the first time that's what you do with it. Can I just say, every night we come home for dinner, we bring our mess and we lay it before the Father and we say, did it again, Lord. We forgive me for that. We cleanse my way and he says, of course I will. Because the blood of Jesus that was sufficient to save you is sufficient to keep you. What a tremendous song. Some, that may have been some of the first time you've ever even heard that song but what a tremendous message is that at the table god is prepared to meet you as you are 
Now, here's the good news about him, uh, that he'll receive you, but he ain't going to leave you like that. He's going to bring you up to the table. He's going to forgive you. He's going to uh, encourage you. And then he's going to give you the tools you need to go back out and to live for him. And today would be a great day for us to decide that we're going to do just that. So that was free. You don't even have to pay for that. That's just coming off the song. Thanks, Eugene, for picking that one. So we're studying the book of James. I find it uh, more to my wiring to teach through books of the Bible. I know there are some pastors that, that uh, they preach series and they're really cool named series and they got awesome graphics and there's all kinds of stuff that I really wish I could do that. I stink at that. I try real hard and, and I've only, of course, y'all know my vocabulary is not monstrous. You know, I don't have a lot of words that I even know. So trying to be creative is not the greatest skill of mine. So I just find it more to my wiring to teach through books of the Bible. That way, God can just say what God wants to say when God wants to say it, and I don't have to figure out how to package it in a way that suits everybody. I can just say what he says. So I find that more to my wiring. And not only that, that's how I was trained. When I went to seminary, that's what they trained us to do. So we've been going through the book of James. This is not the first time that we've gone through the book of James at Oasis Church, but I will tell you this, the last time we went through the book of James, Oasis Church was called Haven Baptist Church. So a lot has happened since then, 10 years ago that we preached this series. And not only that, 10 years ago, I preached the whole book throughout these few weeks. You've had several different faces and opportunities to stand before you and to teach you the book of James. And I want to thank Chad for standing in for us last week. Me and some of the guys went to uh, the men's retreat up at Camp Anderson. It was the uh, Man Up Retreat. There you go. So they said they were going to do it, and then they didn't, but I thought I'd throw it out there. So every time the evangelist said, man up, we had to say, yeah, there you go. So it was a great week. A lot happened. We were encouraged, and that's, in fact, where the kids are going to go. Our teenagers are going to go for camp this summer, which, by the way, the next deposit to do today. So don't leave before you do that, and then we'll get you paid for, uh, for the deposit. So we were there. Thanks, Chad, for standing in. I always listen to the guys after they preach, and I just want to tell you, Every one of them, Mike, Michael, Greg, Chad, they stood in and they communicated the truths of God's word accurately and effectively. And I just want to tell you, in case you don't realize just how blessed you are as a church to have uh, folks like that that can stand in and not just, you know, just take a pinch hit, but actually they could have all taught through this book just right by themselves. And what a blessing it is to have folks like that in our body. So thank you, man. Thank you, Chad, last week. Did a great job. What we're going to deal with today kind of comes on the heels of what Chad dealt with last week. At the end of chapter 4, James uses a word or a couple of words, and he says, come now, and then he goes into this little little uh, rant, if you will, about making plans apart from apart from God's will, and now we're going to come to another come now. So if you got your Bibles, you got your phone or tablet or whatever you're following along with, we're in James chapter 5. We're going to deal with the first six verses today. Got a long way to go today in God's Word, and by His grace, we will get there, um, and we're not going to try to, to belabor too many of the points because there's just a lot here. And it comes to passages like James 5, 1 to 6, it is what is called a hard passage. Now, I know you go, well, that's not very creative. No, it's considered a hard passage of Scripture. Number one, because it's hard to understand following the context of this letter that James is writing, and we're just trying to, we're trying to understand how God was moving his thoughts and trying to connect things the way that God intended. And we get to this passage, and, and it's a hard passage because you look at it and you ask the question, why is he doing this? Why is he saying these things to these people? It's a hard passage because we not, you know, we look at it and it just doesn't seem to fit naturally. It's also a hard passage because it's hard to hear what James has to say. 
Meaning it's going to affect us if we simply open our hearts and our minds to what he has to say. Uh, I don't know about, about most of you, but if you've been here with us a little while, you recognize that I don't talk a lot about money. And I've had folks that have come and have been with us for a while and I'm like, when, do you, when are you going to get to the yearly thing about money? You talk about money and, and you know what? That is true. I don't talk a lot about money and probably I don't talk about it enough. That's probably more accurate is that not that, oh good, this is a guy that doesn't talk about money. I probably should talk about it more. But again, it's more to my style to just sort of deal with the book of the Bible and let God's word say what it says. So if you've been wondering why I haven't been preaching a lot about money, you picked a great week to come because here it goes. It's a hard passage. It's going to be hard to understand why it's there. But once we kind of wrap our mind around that, it's going to be a hard passage because of what it's going to say to every one of us. So we're going to work our way through James chapter 5, verse 1 through 6, to the very best of our ability, letting it simply say what it says. Let's read it. James 5, 1 to 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You've lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now you read that if you've been, if you were reading the entire letter, and you can, you can read the the letter of James to the churches uh, of the, of those that are dispersed out, Jewish believers, followers of Jesus. You could read this letter in one sitting in about 10 minutes. You just sort of blow through it, and, and, and what you'll find is that James's approach is kind of circular. He's not like Paul. Paul says, be, you know, this is true, this is true, this is true, and because of this, do this, do this, do this, do this, and so-and-so says hello, and so-and-so says hello, and hope you have a great day, and I'll see you when I get there. That's Paul's way. I, I love preaching Paul's letters because it's just, now that doesn't mean they're easy. It just means they're structured. Here's what James does. James kind of starts right here and he, and he starts talking and then he'll make these circles out and then he'll come back and he'll make these circles out a little wider and he'll come back. And then sometimes he makes these wide circles and comes way back up here to the front. So it's kind of difficult to grasp where James is pulling and tying things. So you, you kind of got to hold on tight to understand where James is at. So when we preach through James, it makes it hard because we deal with a passage this week that's connected to something that we preached three or four weeks ago or three weeks ago and five weeks ago and eight weeks ago. So it makes it a little bit of a challenge when we get to this passage because we look at it and we go, whoa, Man, that doesn't sound like believers that you're talking about at all. It sounds like you're talking to folks that aren't even a part of the church. I mean, these are murderers. They've condemned. They've stolen. They've utilized fraud. And man, it seems like he's talking to unbelievers. And almost universally, Bible students believe that that is, in fact, who James is talking to in this little six-verse section, talking to unbelievers. Now, here's the danger in me telling you that. I have to tell you that so that you can kind of understand what James is doing. But I hate telling you because I know what most of you will do is say, well, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, so this is not to me. You need to understand this. 
James was speaking about unbelievers for the benefit of the church. James is, is what we think, James is utilizing a means of communication that is about folks outside of the body for the benefit of folks inside the body. Any of you as a kid ever not been the one that threw the ball through the window yet you were a part of the scolding process that happened? Anybody ever been a part of that? You know, you've been in a classroom and I wasn't talking, but I felt the sermon when the teacher came back, right? So you get it? All right, same kind of thing going on. James has had a lot to say about specifically the rich and riches. Look at verse one. Come now, listen up, pay attention. Basically, hey y'all, you rich, listen up. He's had a lot to say about the rich and riches. In chapter number one, in, in the first few verses, in using an illustration about the rich and the poor and how they should boast, he talks about the rich, but not necessarily negatively, because probably there were people of means in the church. It's reasonable to think that there were people that were a part of the body of Christ that had means. I'll give you one example that, uh, that Luke demonstrates for us when he's recording the, the, uh, the actions and the activities and the journeys of the apostles, uh, Luke introduces us to a woman by the name of Lydia. She was a seller of purple garments. And the only people that bought purple garments were rich people. And so it's to be understood that Lydia had a little bit of coin. So it's not unimaginable that there were people of means in the church. It's just showing us, James is, the contrast between the majority, which were poor, and the, and the few, which were rich. And he was encouraging them to consider how that they boasted. The poor were to boast in the fact that I might not have stuff here, but what I have in Christ overwhelms anything I could ever have here. And the ones who were rich, James encourages them to boast in the fact that, hey, whatever I've got here is of no consequence because it wasn't here before and it could be gone later. And so he encouraged them that had means not to glory in those means, but rather to consider themselves as they are of the same type, even with the poor. So he starts out talking to them. Then he moves on into chapter number two and he talks about the rich in a more neutral way, but in a negative way to the people. Remember what he said? He says, you treat people different. Let me show you. A person who comes in with nice clothes and a ring on their finger, you find them the nicest seat. So he's talking about those with means in the church. So not negative. And he says, but you treat them differently than the poor. The poor walk in, they have nothing. And you're like, um, we've got some overflow in the next building. Or maybe you could sit on the back row, if you will, and just kind of not, if just don't mingle, but these people, so they were discriminating. So James is talking about riches in that respect. In that same little argument, he then talks about the rich in this way. He goes, why are you doing this? Because isn't it the rich who oppress you? Whoa, wait a minute. Well, we're talking about, we're talking about rich people in the church, but now he's talking about a group of people who typically use their riches to oppress. Why are y'all so impressed with the folks that have money that come in? Isn't it that crowd that opposes you and blasphemes the name by which you were called and ends up causing trouble in your life? Why are you so impressed by that when they're the ones that are contrary to the faith? And this is where James identifies negatively the rich. But you know, he continues to talk about money and riches, or at least the mindset of riches. He starts off in chapter number three when he was referring to bitter jealousy and selfish ambition following the wisdom of the world. You remember what that causes? That causes disorder and every vile practice. 
when I begin to want what's best for me, what I can do for me, and I don't like that you've got that and I don't have that, it begins to put the wheels in motion. And typically, where do we see this happening? In the world's goods. I need more to have more so that I can at least have what you got. Because you don't even deserve it anyway. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. Again, not these unbelievers who oppress, but believers who are being caught away in their heart by jealousy and selfish ambition. He goes on in chapter number four to talk about the quarrels that are happening between followers of Jesus because of their covetousness, because we're angry with one another, because they have an opportunity that I don't have, or they've got a thing that I think I'll... All of a sudden, we're seeing the spirit of the rich residing within the hearts of the believers. And James is, I mean, he's just hitting it at every turn. And every time we're sitting here listening to the book of James, we ought to, we ought to feel the blows of truth across our face because we live in that arena. And then he goes on last week, as Chad taught us, to consider, come now you who are saying, I'm going to go here and there and spend a year to do what? Do you recall what the text said? To make a profit. I'm going to do this, that, and the other. And the idea was they, they were doing this without consideration of what God's will might have been for them. What was their thinking based on? bottom line why because they were interested in becoming more wealthy so that they might do more of what they want to do and you know when you set your mind to something you know this is true because i know this is true when you set your mind to something that you want to do or accomplish it's going to happen unless something absolutely prohibits it from happening. I, I have some friends, and they have a tendency to, that we'll be talking, and they'll say something, and they'll talk about something, and I'll go, you're going to do that. And they go, what? What are you talking about? I go, ah, I, I've known you long enough to know if you say it, it's going to happen. Aren't we all like that? When we set our mind to something, and James is going, hey, <laughs> listen up, you folks. You've got all these plans made, and what you need to do is put those plans behind the will of God. So this is kind of what we think we're going to do this year, but God is fully free to change my plans, and do. I'll do whatever he wants to do, and I'll set my plans aside. In fact, my plans don't even have to materialize if I'm doing what God wants to do. And that's what Chad taught us last week. Well, now what James does is he takes it from the, you can fall into the trap of riches, and now what he's doing is he's over here, scolding a bunch of rich folks, which honestly, I don't think these folks was a, were a high population of the church. But James is making a very pointed scolding to a group of people that existed in James's day for the benefit of everyone listening. See, you scold all of the kids... You, you get them all lined up on the fence and you tell them all how dangerous that was that the one did, right? You do that not because you're being mean, because you want for them to all feel the effect of those consequences. So that when they all get off the fence, even the ones who didn't do it are going, man, I don't ever want to do that. That's what James is doing. So don't think that because he's speaking to a group of unbelievers, which I think he is, don't think you're off the hook. You're on the hook. Look what he says. And, and we'll have to move through this quickly. Verse number one. Come now, you rich, weep and howl. Weep and howl. These words, weep and howl, are what is known as, and English teachers tell me if I say this wrong, it is an onomatopoeia. You know what an onomatopoeia? That's just fun to say. Let's all say that together. Onomatopoeia. 
use that in a sentence this week. What is an onomatopoeia? Onomatopoeia is a word that sounds like what it's describing. And this works even in the Hebrew. This word, weep and howl, it's an it's, it's a word. You, you can even just say it loud and you find that you're doing what it's told you to do. What is James saying? He's saying you need to be shrieking and crying out in horror. Horror of what? For the miseries that are coming upon you. Now, what one author said is that anytime in the Old Testament, in the Greek text of the Old Testament, which is the Septuagint. So anytime you see the Septuagint, you know that that's the Old Testament translated into Greek, all right? And it's identified LXX. If you've never known what that is, that's just simply the Old Testament translated into the Greek language. Anytime you see the word that is in Greek, howl, anytime that word is used in the Old Testament translation in the Greek, it's always connected to God's judgment. So this is not shriek and howl because of what riches is going to do in your life today. This is shriek and howl, you rich, you unbelieving rich. You need to go ahead right now and begin hollering and weeping and crying because of the misery that is coming to you in the form of God's judgment. You see it everywhere in the Old Testament. It's all over the place where God says there is a day of the Lord coming when he is going to bring his judgment on his enemies. Trust me, class, you don't want to be God's enemy. But there are millions that have rejected and are currently, uh, they have rejected and are currently rejecting the goodness and the love and the grace and the mercy of God that are standing as enemies of God and are going to be the recipients of God's judgment. You say, well, I don't like that. Well, that's why he's called us to be a light to those who have not heard so that they might hear the gospel and turn to him. So we've got a responsibility in that. But my point is, James is saying, you unbelieving rich, go ahead and start crying out because of all that God is going to bring on you through judgment. And I can imagine that James is kind of in the periphery of his eyesight, looking to see how the believers who are flirting with riches might be squirming in their seats as he's telling them about the miseries that are to come. He says, your riches, number verse number two, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Verse number three, your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. James is warning the unbelieving rich who are posed to to sit under God's judgment, and now he's giving them the evidence of their misuse of riches. Their evidence of misuse of riches. There are a number of folks in in the church world today that will say this, if you are rich, it is wrong. And that's simply not a biblical truth. The Bible nowhere says that having wealth is sinful in and of itself. It also never says anywhere that having no wealth, being poor, is a righteous standing. Nowhere in the scripture does it teach if you've got money, then you necessarily are uh, living in sin. And if you don't have money, then you are righteous. The Bible does use poverty and wealth as pictures to describe the condition of one's heart, 
but never to determine whether or not someone is right before God. In fact, the Pharisees had a real problem with this because the Pharisees were wealthy and they believed that their wealth showed that God was pleased with them. And if you were poor, that God was not pleased with you. And Jesus came onto the scene, what? The poorest of the poor so that he might bring salvation to all. Make sense? But what James is talking to is a group of folks who are unbelievers who have the world's goods and are misusing them. And he's about to give evidence of this misuse. All the while, class, keeping his eyes on the believers who are on the fence listening to this warning. Here's what he says. Number one, you're guilty. You're guilty, you rich, and you're going to face judgment. And one of the evidences of your heart's condition, one of the evidences of your condition before God is the fact that you hoard your riches when there are needs around you. What does he say? Verse number two, your riches have rotted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver have corroded. In the New Testament world, there were three arenas by which your riches would be most seen. They were in the fact that you had food to eat. You think, oh, everybody's got food. Not in that day. Food was not easy to come by. If you had food every day, you were in the wealthy class. If you had a variety of foods, you were in the super wealthy class. So there was food. There were clothing. The clothing that you could wear. Most folks had a garment or maybe a spare undergarment. So if you can imagine, most folks wore a tunic and maybe they flip-flopped between one undergarment and they wore the same thing Every day. Many might not have even had anything to swap because it was so scarce. There was no cotton mill and Walmart to sell all the fineries. Food, clothing, gold and silver. And here's what James is doing. He goes, look here, you rich. Listen up. You better start. You think, you think you're all that. You need to start weeping and howling because of the misery that's coming to you. God's judgment is coming on you. And here's how I know that your heart is far from him. Because in the day of need, you're hoarding riches. You're gathering so much food that it's rotting in the cupboard. Now, I'm telling you, this is where we all live. All right, how many of us have gone to the cupboard to discover what that smell is? What is that smell? And we we scour the. It's a rat. There's a rat in here. Something got over, only to discover it is the bag of potatoes that would have to take CSI to confirm that they are actually potatoes. We bought them, put them in the cupboard. We need them. They're rotten. How many of you have a garbage disposal at home? Anybody have a garbage disposal in the sink? You rake it. We love ours. How many meals have we scraped down? Look, Pastor Kevin, he is yelling at us and meddling, and he's like, look, I'm with you. I'm at the front of the line. I've been dealing with this for two weeks now, so you just get it now. How many meals we scraped over in there, the trash can, thrown in the hoarding? Your food, here's the evidence against you. you when that judgment comes, you've got nothing to stand on because you've got goods that, are, that could be good for, and you're hoarding it. Not only that, your clothes, you've got so many of them, you've got a feast for the moths in your closet. Now, I know this is going to be tough, but how many of us have clothes in our closet right now with tags on it? Don't raise your hand, son. (laughs) 
<laughs> Different story. I did ask though, didn't I? So it's my fault. And you go, you picking on, not, not us men. No way. But how many of us have clothes in our closet that we hadn't been able to wear in a year? And let's be honest. I'm not even going to fill in the blank there, but you just be honest and it's there. Shoes that we wear once, but they're cute. Hats that we wore home from the store that we've never wore again because they hurt our head and don't like the way they look on us. Could we go, you know, games we've never played, guns we've never shot, tackle, never, well, it was on sale. And look, find a thing. I'll meddle over in your thing. So if I haven't offended you yet, just pretend like I've said something about your thing, okay? You be mad too. Hoarding. Don't we do it? Well, yeah, but we're not the wicked rich. There's evidence to the condition of your heart. And he's waiting, I think, to show us where we're at. Rotting, and then your gold and silver is rusting. I'm not a scientist, but I'm pretty sure gold and silver don't rust. What's he saying? He's saying, you got so much. You don't need it. And you got it sitting over in the, in the this, that, and the other, and the that, this, and it's earning, and the this, and that. I, got, I don't have a lot of those, but I do have at times more than I need. In a time of, what does he say? In the, in the last days, what are you doing? You're storing up for yourself. Think about, uh, y- y'all remember Y2K? <laughs> what in the world? We were nuts. What were we doing? I'm sorry. But maybe you had beans for a thousand years and bullets for 10 years. But guess what? 20 folks with more bullets than you got, got all your bullets and all your beans, right? I mean, let's just be honest. But what were we doing? Oh man, it's going to, listen, James is not saying don't be prepared, don't save, don't be smart. James is saying you're hoarding. You got more than you need. You wicked wicked rich because don't we find ourselves there yeah man we're not going to get done with this if, if you follow along in you version there's some passages of scripture that you really you want to be able to listen to and you want to be able to read matthew 6 jesus talking about not laying up for yourselves treasure on earth why because moth rusts or moth eat and rust and thieves and but lay up for yourself treasure in heaven. That's where we need to be laying up our treasure. Uh, Romans two five talks about uh, a, a hard and um, uh, a hard heart storing up wrath for the day of wrath that is coming. Uh, Proverbs eleven four saying riches don't profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Mark 8, 36, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world? Who's going to gain the whole world? Nobody. But what would it profit if you could and yet lose your own soul? Self-explanatory. And then he told about a rich man who had plenty and had nowhere to store his crops. He said, oh, no, what I'll do, I'll tear down these barns and I'll build bigger barns. And God's standing there going, you idiot. You have no idea that you're going to die tonight. And you're worried about building bigger barns. Hoarding. What else? He says in verse number four, behold, the wages of the laborers who have mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts, not paying the workers what they owe. You realize those that were rich in those days 
could, with leverage, have workers who couldn't fend for themselves and they were out as a a day worker and they would work and the rich could just hold on to the money because they couldn't get that money out. They couldn't take them to the court. You know why? Because their riches gave them the leverage to own the court and the lawyers. And you know what God said to his people? He said, I better not hear of you treating one another like that. Uh-uh, don't you use what you've got to hurt by defraud someone. What, what is he talking about? He's talking about not paying folks what they deserve. You know why small, some of you guys are, guys and ladies, are small business owners. And you don't like doing work for big companies, those that have a lot. You don't like doing business with them. I'm going to tell you why. You know why. Because they don't pay you in 30 days. They pay you more like 180 days if you can get it out of them. They'll drag it so far. Oh, they'll want what you got, and and you need them, but they won't pay you good. You know what that feels like. God goes, you wicked rich, here's the evidence. You're hoarding. You got more than you could ever need, and it's rotting there as evidence against you. And I'll tell you what else is evidence to get you. The cries of the workers that you have employed but have defrauded. By not paying them. It's pretty in vogue nowadays for us to not pay the bills that we don't think we ought to pay. Pretty common for bills just to get written off. So maybe we're not defrauding people because of what we have, but maybe we're holding on to what we have and we're not doing with what we are responsible for. Defraud. Deuteronomy talking about not oppressing the workers. What about the harvesters? You think about think about Ruth. What was Ruth? Ruth was um, she was someone in need that didn't have a you know didn't have a means to support herself because her husband had died and her mother in law was with her and her father in law was dead. And so how did Ruth survive? She survived by going to a kinsman's field and gleaning what they left behind. You know why they leave things behind? Because God had told them, when you harvest, don't gather it all up. Leave some out there for those who can't fend for themselves. What do we do? Use it all up. We'd say living paycheck to paycheck. You know why? Most of the time, it's because we've extended ourselves farther than we ought to be. So it takes everything for us to make ends meet. We've not given ourselves any margin. That's evidence against the wicked, yet it's found in the body. Third evidence, verse number five, and this one's one going to hit the hardest. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. I want you to imagine the steer that you have bought at the sale. It's in the pen out behind your house. And you just keep feeding it the hay and the table scraps. And that that cattle's back there going, man... I am living large. Yes, every time I get done eating this, there's a whole new trough full. Man, ain't I got it good. (laughs) All the rest of us are over in the background giggling (laughs) because we know what's coming. What are we doing? We're making them ready for the dinner table. James says, you've been living in wanton excess lavish luxury not realizing you're fattening yourself for the day of slaughter now here's the problem most of us don't think we live luxuriously now, there are places and there are places in winter haven that i can drive through and i see houses and and stuff and i just go i drive by and i think what in the world do they do and not only that, there's like a whole neighborhood worth of Where do y'all work? What do y'all do for a living? How in the world can you afford these things in Winter Haven? 
And so what we do is we end up going, well, man, I wish I could live like the other side. Like, like we're on the other side. I heard someone preach this text and they made a statement. They're in North Carolina and they made this statement. They said, uh, if you qualified for uh assistance government assistance if you qualified for assistance food stamps or medical or any of that kind you qualified for that and you didn't receive it all right you know so i'm not saying you qualify it and you get it if you qualify it and yet don't receive it you're still richer than 85% of the population of the entire world let that sink in needing qualifying for assistance and not taking it and i'm still richer than 85 percent. now here's what we'll do we'll go yeah but pastor Kevin, you know we live in a different culture and let it sink in for crying out loud we are rich every one of us you got a drawer full of drawers you're rich You got two pair of shoes that you can choose from? You're rich. You got water that you don't have to boil to drink? You're rich. You got a bathroom in the house? Do we live in luxury class? Yeah. Do we have a tendency to not do what is required of us? Are we hoarding? Yeah. The last one. You've condemned, verse 6, you've condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Persecuting the righteous, he says, and this is what it looks like. Again, these rich in James's time had the leverage to hold money from those that they had hired and they weren't paying. And they had the leverage to lay charges against them that would go in their favor because of the commonality of the bribe. The courts were in their pocket. And many times the laws were in their pocket. And if you crossed one of those wealthy landowners and you dare say that you deserve something or you level an accusation against you, he could have easily you thrown into prison for as long as they wanted because there were no statutes in those days for as long as they wanted whether the 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 accusation was true or not simply because you had the coin to make it happen james goes they don't resist you you know why because they can't you're doing whatever it takes to get whatever you want no matter what it takes. And you say, well, Kevin, I've never murdered or condemned anybody. But have we ever walked the line of making ourselves look a little bit more attractive than our coworker so that we might have that job? Why do we want that job? Because it pays more, has more benefits. We're on the fence, crowd. We're on the fence, and God is looking at the rich, unbelievers. You know, they're not, they're, they're, they're not condemned and under judgment because they're rich, but they think they're beyond judgment. And so God, through James, is saying, you might as well start shrieking and howling today. Because that misery that's coming on you is on its way. And here's the evidence you who think it ain't. Or that there's no reason for it. Hoarding, defrauding, wanton excess. Doing whatever it takes 
persecuting others to step over them on them if necessary to get what you want. And he just kind of drops it right there. He just kind of lets that simmer. You know why? Because we get it. And I think they got it real good. And we don't like it. Some, some of it because we like what we got. But some of it we don't like just simply because we don't know what to do. See, if you're like me, I've been wrestling with this passage all week and a little bit the week before. And it's just kind of one of those, Lord, I don't know what to do. What do I do with this? I don't, I don't know how I'm supposed to respond. I feel it. Yes, I'm hoarding right now. I'm hoarding. Yes, I have a tendency to not do what is responsible for me to do. I'll, I'll let the thing sit for a while. And I'm defrauding and I, yeah, because they're not coming after me. Yeah, I guess I do do that. Yeah, luxury. Yeah. yeah. I got a seat warmer in, in my van. Yeah. I got clean towels in the closet. Yeah. Do I step over? Yeah. Am I an unbeliever? No. No. Well, what do I do? We're going to read a few verses. We're going to make a few statements. And then we'll go home. First Timothy. Chapter number 6. Verses 6 through 10. Timothy was Paul's protege, if you will. Paul's giving him some commands. Here's what he says. Timothy, I want you to teach these things. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich, well, they fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, it's a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the table, away from the faith, and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse number 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy, there to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I hope that James 5, 1 to 6 sinks into your heart. But I really hope that you'll go home today and you'll begin to read and read, and read, and read, and read over and over and over again. First Timothy 6, 6 through 10, 17 through 19. That is God's words to us. Here are the things we can do. I have several of them. We'll pray. Number one, admit you are rich stop thinking that you're poor you may not have as much as your neighbor and you might not have as much as you want but you are currently richer than the majority of the population of this world so admit it you are rich and you and I have responsibilities Number, number two, decide that you will be content. 
You know why you have to decide it? Because you're not content. Neither am I. How many of us have things in our, in our Amazon cart right now? Decide to be content. Do you need it? Let's just start there. Do you need what's in the cart right now? Number three. Recognize how much that money and wealth stands in the way of your discipleship and mine. Follow me. Why do we have to really pull our hair out of our heads to put a schedule around here where we can be iron-on-iron discipling one another? You know what the number one reason why we can't do things together as a body? You ready? I can't because I got to say it. Work. I know if you don't want to work, you're not going to eat. I get it. But do we have to work as much? We're going to have what we want, we do. Recognize that money and wealth stands in the way of our discipleship. Number four, confess your love for money. Well, Pastor Kevin, I don't love money. Yeah, you do. Because I do too. I got things in my Amazon car. I got things that I would like to have in life. I'm telling you, I'd look great in a 1978 Pontiac Trans Am. I'm just telling you. Y'all convince my wife of that because she don't believe me. We love it. Let's confess that as sin because that's just what it is. It's sin. Number five, I think. Surrender everything you have or will have to the one who truly owns it all. You realize it may be in your possession, but it don't belong to you. What do we have parked at our house that God never wanted? What are we pursuing that God don't need? Because guess what? We're spending his resources on it. Six, renounce the lie that your security depends on you. Because it don't. Scripture charges us to save. It does. But do you know why Scripture charges us to save? So that we might be prepared to bless. Not so that we'll take care of ourselves, because we don't take care of ourselves. That's a lie. Number seven, trust God to provide for your needs and enjoy what he provides. What does he say? He richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You know what God gives us, he wants to, us to enjoy, but we spend so much time wanting what we want, getting what we want, enjoying what he never intended us to have, and then facing the consequences of all that comes with having what he never wanted us to have. What if we just let him give us what he wanted us to have and enjoy the hound out of that? What would that be like? Number eight. Open your eyes to the opportunities around you to be doers of the word. Charge the rich to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, to share. Look for the opportunities that you have to be doers of the word. And not hearers only. Number nine, be generous, give, stop hoarding. Be generous, give, stop hoarding. Here's a way for you to learn how to be generous. I got three written down right here. 
Andy Stanley has a four or five part series called Crazy Like Us. It's on a free service through Right Now Media that you all have access to. You may not know it, but you do. You go, I don't know how to do that. Let me tell you. I'll show you how to log on. And you can watch Andy Stanley's Crazy Like Us. And he'll show you through God's Word how you can plan to be generous. If you go, I can't afford to be generous, Pastor Kevin, I got exciting news for you. There's still room in Financial Peace University that starts this Wednesday night. Learn how to get out from under some of the things that are pulling you down so that you can be a blessing and do good and be rich in good works and be generous and give and stop hoarding. If neither of those sound like a good idea, Mr. Larry Jordan put together one of the coolest little resources that I will make a copy and put in your hands. It's called Rock Solid Finances. It's a four-part little thing, and all it does is it, it boils off all the fun that comes with Financial Peace University, and it just gives you, you know, the little kit car for it. You put the same principles to practice. Do something so that you can be generous and give. Stop hoarding. 10. Invest in God's kingdom. This is where I would probably take the next 20 minutes and talk to y'all about tithing. I'm not going to do that. Because actually I think God wants more than our tithe. I think he wants it all. (laughs) I think he wants us to be reckless with all of it for his glory. Knowing that he's going to take care of us. Here's what I'd like for you to do. Just as a little exercise. Let's just pretend you wanted to start giving more. I challenge you. To go home today, pull out 2018 or 2017, because we're about to do it. Pull out 2017's tax return. Look at the gross amount and multiply that by 0.10. And then divide that by 12. And then just imagine what it would look like if you gave God a tenth of what He gives you right off the top. <clears throat> and then after you. <clears throat> Wow, and you feel, you know, I just threw up a little bit in my mouth. I swallow that back down and then just recognize that God will walk with you toward that. You know, he's not saying that you got to go from 20 bucks to 100 bucks or 300 bucks next week. But going, oh, wow, Lord, that's just a tenth of what I have. Wow, that compared with what I've been given, whoo-hoo, man. Take a step of faith, believing. And God don't want your money. God just don't want your money to have you. Take a step. See what he does. If you're tithing, be reckless. Number 11. Correct your misuses of riches. Whatever God has shown you today, do that. Address that. And then lastly, you ready? Respond humbly. Respond humbly. Stand up with me. Stand up with me. Keep playing, Eugene. Verse number six, James four. But he, God, gives more grace to those that realize they've been hoarding and defrauding and and wasting and climbing. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So here's what we're going to do. Verse seven, we're going to submit ourselves, therefore, to God. We're going to resist the devil, knowing that he's going to flee from us. We're going to draw near to God so that he'll draw near to us. We're going to cleanse our hands. We're going to fix what has been broken. We're going to do something about it. We're going to cleanse our hands. We're going to purify our hearts. We're going to be wretched. We're going to mourn. We're going to weep. We're going to let our laughter be turned to mourning and our joy to gloom. We're going to humble ourselves before the Lord so that he will exalt us. Doesn't that sound like a good idea? We just let God say what he says, and then we just respond humbly and obediently. And then you do what God's told you to do. Make sense? Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for uh, this body. 
I thank you for these people. I thank you for their love and for their their graciousness and their uh, really. It, it, this is a, this is an awesome. This is an awesome church. These people want to serve, and and they you know they 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 demonstrate their love for me and my family, and they get behind the things that we're doing. And God, I just pray that you will that you will just use this word this morning to strengthen our endurance to take us from a a good strong church and make us more committed to you than ever before and may it be evidenced in the things that we have and how we use them because they belong to you and you've called us to be stewards So, Father, I just ask that you will help us to hear from you and not forget when we go out the door, but to put it to practice. We love you and we thank you. Father, I pray for that one that may be here today that doesn't yet know Jesus. Know that, I pray that you help them know that you don't want their money. You don't need it. You already own it. You want their heart. You want them at the table so that they can begin, they can begin walking and growing in you. And knowing how to use their entire life as a pointer to your love and grace. I pray that you will draw them to yourself. And may they see Jesus, his death and resurrection, as the only ticket to the table. But one that's available to all. So God, we ask that you'll take us and use us in whatever way you see fit. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen.